Welcome to another episode of Leadership Narratives with the Kentucky Psychological Association, where I interview leaders in the field of psychology in Kentucky. My name is Hannah Heights, and I'm a doctoral student in the Counseling Psychology program at the University of Louisville. Today, I'm here with Dr. Felicia Smith, a clinical psychologist and co-owner of Strong Minds, a child and adolescent practice in Louisville. In addition to these roles, Dr. Smith has taught at the University of Louisville and is highly involved with the Kentucky Psychological Association's past president and current APA Council representative. Welcome to the podcast today. We're so excited to have you join us. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. So I'd like to start out with some more general, broad questions around your experience as a psychologist. And first off, I'd love to hear a little bit about what attracted you to the field of psychology. Um, So I became interested in psychology as a college student. Uh, Actually, my second year in college, I entered college with a plan to become an attorney. Um, So I was pre-law and was kind of interested in um, business and finance. And so I was trying to figure out how to blend the two. Um, And then I took my introduction to psychology class as a sophomore or second year student and absolutely loved it. Just the content was just so engaging for me. Um, it, it just really resonated. Uh, I had always been a person who thought about how, like how people work and how they come to think the way they do and the thoughts that go into their behaviors. And so that class, that was all that class was about. And I thought, this is, this is incredible. Um, and I couldn't get enough. I remember I had classmates who would try to get around the reading and they would like come to me and say, did you read that chapter? Like, what do I need to know for the test? And I would say, you didn't read it? Oh, it's so good. (laughs) So um, that class was really um, just captured me. And so I took another and, um, and then ultimately thought, why am I choosing a different field to pursue? This is how I want to spend all of my time. This is what I want to think about all day, every day. Um, so yeah, just really trying to understand human behavior um, was, was really attractive to me. And, and that's, that's the core of psychology. So changed my major and um, pursued the track. I'm glad I did. That's so interesting. Everyone I've interviewed, or almost everyone I've interviewed so far has started out pre-med, so I think you're the first person who started out pre-law, which is really interesting. That Um, is interesting, yeah. Yeah, so thinking about that and and how much you loved studying as an undergrad and your graduate school experience, what is your favorite part of being a psychologist? I, you know, certainly I, the, my favorite part is just having an impact, right? Feeling like I'm in this field that um, has, a, that allows me the opportunity to affect change in some way or another. And that can be at the individual level, group level, community level. Um, there are just so many opportunities to make a difference. And so that feels really meaningful to me. Um, I'd love to meet new people and hear about their stories and that's inherent in what I do. Um, and then I think I would say that I really like psychology, primarily my practice is focused around psychological assessment. Um, so trying to, um, clarify diagnostic picture and understand, um, 
kind of underlying factors that are contributing to troubles that people are having. And so it allow, I, I sometimes feel like a detective. I feel like I'm trying to find the data and you know, put it together to figure out the overall story. Um, so that just is, is always interesting. Um, you know, I feel like there's always a challenge in, in front of me, which um, you know, probably just uh, fits well with my personality. I need to keep it interesting. And so psychology allows me to do that. Yeah, definitely, definitely does. I love the idea of being a detective and kind of figuring out a diagnosis. Um, right. And that, yeah, that kind of leads me to a question around your private practice. What was the experience of opening up Strong Minds? Ooh, it was scary. <laughs> it was really scary. Um, so just after graduate school, I started, um, I accepted a assistant professor position at the University of Louisville. I was in the medical school and, um, you know, lots of challenges there. Um, but I also, I, I honestly sort of got to this point in my life where my work-life balance wasn't quite where I wanted it to be. And so I had to figure out what I was going to do about that. Um, and knew that that would be hard in the, the structure and the, the organization and with the organizational demands of the university. So that's when I started to think about how I really wanted to be spending my time and what opportunities would allow me to do that. So decided to uh, start my own practice. And um, the scary parts about it were that um, I had no business background, really, to speak of. Um, graduate school didn't really teach me about the business of practice. Um, and so I felt like I was embarking on this journey of being an entrepreneur with very little training. And, um, you know, psychology is all about training. Like you're always kind of thinking back to what, what have I learned about this? Where's my footing? Um, do I need more training? And, and so uh, I just didn't have anything to, to lean on with becoming a business owner. Um, so that meant what I ended up doing, my business partner, Dr. Tanya Stockhammer and I, we sought out courses in the community. So we enrolled in workshops and seminars through the Small Business Association about marketing and bookkeeping and taxes and you know all of these things that we had no information about on the business side. So figuring out how to negotiate all of those demands was intimidating. But, you know, again, presented a new challenge. And I think it also really helped me to appreciate the, the diversity in the field, that psychology, like there's so many things you can do. And then those, you know, all these different paths bring new opportunities to learn and to challenge yourself. Um, and it's absolutely one of the things that attracted me to the field. And so starting my practice really kind of threw me into that. Um, and... It, you know, all along the way, there have been new, new challenges, ways that we've had to kind of like switch gears and, and figure out something that um, was unexpected or unpredictable. And, um, and overall, it's, it's been great. It's been a wonderful way for me to keep doing the things that are most important to me. So if I feel like, hey, gosh, I really want to be more involved in the community and have more presence outside of my four walls of my, my business, then I can do that. 
I can make that happen. Times when I feel like, you know, I need to kind of hunker down and, and maybe scale back because family demands have increased, the practice allows me to do that as well. So I really appreciate that I can, you know, just sort of shift and, and be flexible depending on where I'm at at these different phases of my own life. It takes a lot of bravery and persistence to take classes oh. and do all those things to prepare to even begin to think about starting a business. Oh gosh, persistence, yes. <laughs> How long did that process take for you from the time you decided you wanted to do this to, to getting it off the ground? I would say it was probably about a year, probably about 10 to 12 months of planning and preparation before we felt like, okay, let's open the doors and, and we're in all is good. Like we will have enough people coming into those doors that we can actually pay the light bill. Right. Um, <laughs> but I would say that it probably was the first two or three years before we really felt like we had a routine and that we knew, you know, the ebb and flow of, of the business. We are child and adolescent psychologists. So the school year has a big impact on what we're doing any given day, how busy we are with the focus of you know, the, the referrals, what they look like, who the referrals are coming from. So it was about two to three years before we felt like we really had our feet underneath us and we sort of, you know, had this thing, you know, we, we understood the routine. So it, it was, it's definitely a, there was a, a, a long period of transition, I would say overall. Wow. And thinking about routine now, I mean, that's, it's gone. <laughs> what is oh that? Oh my gosh. Yeah. What has that been like for you? Because Strong Minds went to um, total, totally ter- teletherapy back in March. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Routine was thrown out the window, Hannah. It was just gone <laughs> from one day to the next. So we had a lot of figuring out to do and had a short period of time to do it in. So, you know, the state mandate came that businesses needed to close and um, we had patients to take care of, right? So we needed to figure out how we were going to continue to do that without um, too much time in between. Um, so we weren't doing teletherapy really at all. I mean, we would do a little bit of teletherapy with um, um adolescent patients that had gone to college. And so maybe we were doing some transition work with them until they had connected with providers in their community. But that was really a minority of our cases. And so we were shifting from that to the full, like complete, you know, the whole practice was going to be teletherapy. And we have um, four other providers as well. So it is a group practice that we had to, um, and so we had to accommodate all the unique aspects of everyone's individual practice. Um, So there was a lot of learning. We had to really educate ourselves around HIPAA guidelines and, um, you know, a new aspect of of business functioning, right? Um, So understanding these different platforms and figuring out fee structures and, um, you know, accessibility issues. Uh, So there was a lot to learn during that period of time. Um, We changed some of our operations within the practice. So we moved to kind of meeting more regularly with all of our providers so that we could gather information about how things were going. We were administering surveys to our patients to find out their experience of teletherapy and um, 
and then using that information to make adjustments along the way. Um, we had to be sure that our administrative assistants were safe. So some aspects of the physical building still needed to be taken care of. And so we had to figure out how to you know, make that happen and in a safe way. There were just lots of new details that had to be covered. And um, it was a period of a lot of flux. And then, you know, it, we would feel like, okay, I think we've, we've got this. So a few weeks would go by and then there'd be another change that we'd have to adapt to. And so um, it, was, it felt like we were in constant motion, honestly. I will say that our patients really just um, went with it. They really didn't skip a beat, um, wow. particularly our preteens and our, our teens. So there were conversations up front about how do you feel about shifting to video conferencing for your sessions? And, and mostly, you know, our, our preteens and above were like, oh, that's no big deal. Fine. You know, we've got this. Um, the younger kids did have a tougher time. So sitting in front of the camera and um, not having that kind of physical presence was harder for them. So we would see kids doing cartwheels on camera <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, playing with figurines and, and parents would tell us, um, yeah, he was, you know, like doing silly things under the camera to see if you could see him, you know, so totally distracted. Um, so that population has been harder to reach by way of teletherapy. Um, so that part of things concerns me, uh, just in terms of access to care, right? So we've, we've tried to you know, remain, continue to be connected with families, with youngers, younger kids, and maybe shifted more to a parent consultation model during this period of time. So the, the nature of the work has shifted, I would say, in a more dramatic way for younger kids within our practice compared to olders. That's so interesting. It seems like everything has gone much more smoothly than expected. Kind of every, mm. every person I speak with, while it certainly wasn't easy by any stretch, it seems like patients have adapted, or clients have adapted really well, yeah. and providers have been very flexible. So I think that's, I think so. that's a real testament to, to the field on the whole. Well, I hope so. I hope yeah. so. I will say that we've gotten feedback from our particular patient population that they have just been grateful to still have the option to continue the work, right? Folks were concerned that the things would shut down completely. So I know that um, many psychologists in, with, in our community, but also more broadly, have made this shift and made it very quickly. And um, I think that the, yeah, that was essential, critical, especially during a time of a pandemic where mental health needs had increased. So that's kind of the, the short-term changes brought by COVID. What long-term changes do you think might come from COVID-19 and also uh, recent racial violence going on right now? Yeah, those two, are two separate good questions. questions. Yeah, two good questions. Well, I do think that we are going to make more space for teletherapy and, and telehealth in the field of psychology, um, you know, and, and certainly many providers have been doing that for years, but I, you know, I know very few for whom that was the only, only method of providing services, um, whereas COVID required that in most situations. Um, so I think that there will be more of it happening. I think it will allow us to reach more people. Um, our, our, uh, we're 
we will have um, better access to folks, folks will have better access to us. Um, so for example, I here in Louisville, sitting in Louisville, have traditionally, my practice has focused in the, you know, Metro Louisville area and surrounding counties. You know, we certainly have folks come from other parts of the state, but I feel um, that, I feel like since COVID hit, I got more calls from people around the state and, you know, further away. So suddenly it became easier, or, you know, psychologically seemed easier to, to use the service. Um, and so, so folks from around the state were seeking providers and maybe, you know, coming to me because of an area of specialty that I had um, that they might not have been able to find in their town. Um, I do wonder what states are going to do about licensure and, and the boundaries that, that state licensure um, creates. Um, you know, so for example, it's harder for me to provide services to someone who lives in New Albany, Indiana, even though they're, you know, right around the corner, but because we, we function on, under different state licenses. So I, I think that we'll see some changes there in how people practice across borders. Um, I think that with greater access and accessibility, I think that the nature of the work will change. I think we will, um, I think it'll have an impact on the, you know, stigma and the kind of, you know, barrier, the social barriers to seeking care. Folks can do it more privately, you know, they can do it without a disruption in the rest of their day. So I think it will make it easier to make it happen. Um, and I think that my hope is that people will be more likely to seek out services before problems get big, right? So earlier on in the, in the developmental phase of the troubles, if they have better access to us, then maybe they will use us more often and, and earlier. That's my hope. I, I definitely hope you're right. I think it's it's an incredible thing to give access to so many people. But I know I've heard on the flip side kind of what's lost. Yeah. With telepathy. Yeah. But right. And and yeah, that that needs to be accounted for as well as we figure out where we're headed as a field. The challenges of connecting with people and kind of having that the energy in the room, which I which has been really important to me in one way that I've developed rapport and really kind of better understood where where someone was in the moment you lose some of your ability to do that by telehealth but I, your other question which i think was a great one is how the current social climate and uh, the challenges around race and race racial injustices and racism are impacting the work that we do huge i mean just a great question and the impact is so big I think I'm grateful that this movement is happening. I think that this, this is bringing about a lot of awareness for folks in all different contexts. And, you know, I think people are, are thinking and questioning and challenging themselves in some really important ways. But all of this is coming about because of some real atrocities, right? Some, some traumatic experiences and incidents that we have all witnessed. And so with that comes psychological trauma 
Um, and I think that that trauma is widespread and affects many people. I think that the impact on the black community is unique. Um, and so my hope is that people are seeking out training opportunities so that they can be better equipped to reach the black community and provide services. I mean, the, the flat out truth is that there are fewer people of color or African-Americans in this field than there are other people, right? Um, white people, especially. And so we really need for folks who are passionate about um, this kind of work to make sure that they are trained to do it because we need them now. And I think one of the challenges is that there aren't enough of, there aren't enough people out there with that training. Um, so it's sort of a call to action, I think, for people within the field. Yeah, I um, remember talking with Dr. Niffley about this and he mm. brought up like just the the sheer lack of lack of providers of color in Louisville and Kentucky. I mean, it's, it's incredible, especially at a time like this when you want a provider who looks like you, who you can relate to. I think um, there's so much loss for people when, when we don't have that diversity. So hopefully, mm-hmm. hopefully that, that can change and, and quickly and now. That's right. That's right. I, I hope so. Um, maybe it will bring more people of color, more Black people into the field, which would be fantastic. I just think that, you know, diversity provides richness in, in so many ways. So having more folks in your professional sphere that represent diverse groups or diverse backgrounds benefits everyone in that sphere. Mm-hmm. And I think that it allows more people in the community to be more likely to seek out services. You're right. There's something about having someone sitting across from you that looks like you that maybe has some shared experiences with you that um, increases the chances that you'll talk, that you'll seek out support. And in times like this, we need people to be willing to feel able and safe seeking out support. I think, you know, I am grateful that psychological health, mental health well-being has been a part of the conversation through um these protests and the social unrest, um, I think that that's, that helps with stigma. Um, you know, that we're just saying, hey, it's a given that people are hurting right now and that people are stressed and traumatized. Like, that's like understood. And so we need to do something about it. Um, I think for too long, this idea of being psychologically unhealthy has been equated with being weak or being crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, And it's been an uphill battle uh, in many ways in the field. And so I I like that these these conversations that people are having, that the media is having, that people are having over their dinner tables is more naturally including a conversation about mental health. Yeah, I think that is definitely a positive coming out of this time. Mm. So thinking more broadly, what, what kind of impact do you hope to make in the field and and with your community through your research and practice of psychology and your advocacy work as well. So that actually um, kind of linking to something that I just talked about, this idea of having conversations over the dinner table and psychology or mental health being a part of those conversations. I have always, I think one desire that has guided me through my work has been this interest in bringing psychology to everyday life to really help 
people understand the integration of psychology in everything we do, literally everything we do, right? From the time we get up in the, in the morning and think about our day and how we process what's ahead of us for that day to being in the work setting, regardless of work, what that work setting is and interacting with coworkers or um, folks in power and how we do that to choices that we make about our, our children, what schools they go to, what activities they're gonna be a part of, and then our nighttime routine and sleep hygiene, right? So psychology really has a part in every single thing that we do. And so a goal, a professional goal of mine has been really to normalize this idea of psychology and mental health and, and to help people appreciate that it just is a part of our overall well-being. And so we need to take care of it in the same way that we take care of our physical health and, um, and that it really needs to be top of mind in many ways. Um, my advisor and mentor um, from my uh, training, my internship in Boston and postdoc fellowship would say psychology in every way and every day. Um, and, and that was, you know, just a little motto that she had. And it just hit me um, in such a powerful way because it had been what I, how I had been thinking about psychology. And I would say, you know, you know, in my training days, psychology was sort of siphoned off as, you know, specialty care, right? And, and even insurance companies, health payers and, and hospitals kind of treated it that way as well. And and so I was interested in integrated health care and um, trained in a, in a medical setting and it, because I really wanted to be working in a, in a way that, that acknowledged that psychology is interwoven in our, in our physical bodies and, you know, in our physical health. It just was kind of how I was oriented. So, you know, so not working in a hospital anymore, working in a community-based or a outpatient practice, I'm still thinking in that way, how does psychology impact all the things that we do every day? And, and so I try to think of new ways to bring psychology to people. I try to get outside of my office and give talks and do workshops in schools and with parenting groups and, and you know, done a few face, Facebook Live webinars since COVID has happened in particular because everything has moved to the internet. But I'm, I'm in, in each of those types of, you know, opportunities or interventions, I'm always thinking about how to make this relatable for people so that they can just... Um, be more, more aware so that they can spread the word, the good word about taking care of your mental health, you know, so people are checking in on one another and taking care of each other in this way. That's a hard message to get across. What kind of message has been most effective in conveying the interconnectedness of mental and physical health? Mm. Well, I think, um, you know, so I'm a pediatric psychologist, right? So I am often thinking about the interface of mental health and physical health. So working with kiddos with maybe a diabetes diagnosis or a new diagnosis of cancer and how you adjust to that. Um, and so that feels like with that particular group, it's kind of an easy sell, right? Like our minds and bodies are connected. 
And if our minds are in a good place, it actually helps the healing, the recovery, the, you know, kind of the physical components of what our body is going through. Um, so with that particular population, I feel like um, the message is out there. You know, people, people understand that. Um, I think that um, one of the settings that I, that I have um, really worked hard to make this interconnection apparent has been like in, in schools. Um, so I think that, right, our kiddos go there um, for academics, but we know that um, their mindset, their, their thinking, their emotional um, experience is going to impact their availability to learn, right? They like cognitively, are they able, are they available to learn? And so been um, working hard to figure out ways to help in the school setting that maybe aren't um, naturally there. So, and some of this has been through advocacy work that I'm doing within the state. So, you know, the first aid, um, psychology first aid initiative that, um, that we were advocating for at the state levels is, is consistent with that. So let's make sure that we have people trained to do kind of this initial triage around whether or not there are mental health concerns and, and what to do, what the appropriate referral or recommendations might be. Um, you know, uh, the state is moving toward increasing mental health care providers in the schools, right? So I think the ratio now is one per one, there needs to be one mental health care provider per 150 students which is a huge change in our state. Um, so just making sure that mental health care providers are available. Most of the referrals that I get in my practice are from schools. Um, the majority are. And then next I would say are pediatricians. So, um, you know, this is the place where, the, where kids are at every day and spending most of their time. And so we need to be sure that those folks that are having the, the opportunity to interact with our kids are also tuned in to mental health and how it how it may be affecting them, their daily functioning, and then know what to do when they have concerns. It's a really great example. So thinking about your work in advocacy, I'm sure you've had lots of times when you've um, faced really difficult challenges. Could you just share a little bit about how you maintain your motivation when you're faced with a, a challenge? Yeah. A lot of challenges. <laughs> I feel like, gosh, I've faced so many challenges. But I think that across those, my my approach, my strategy is think about my end goal. What are you hoping to achieve? You know, really define that. Write it down. Be clear about where you're headed, and then work backwards. So, what are the steps? You know, in order to get there, I need to order my steps and to really focus on one of those at a time. Um, what is right before me? Um, you know, there's certainly a mindfulness component in that. Um, but just kind of being, this is where I'm at right now. Here's, here's where I am. There's a reason that I'm here. There's a reason that these particular challenges are, are before me. There's something to be learned through this. Um, and I think that these lessons are going to help me move forward with the next step, right? So just appreciating those challenges as, as growth opportunities. Um, and I have some really good friends and people around me, you know, um, and I know when to kind of mobilize that support 
Um, so through COVID, it's been like, let's do some FaceTime calls together, right? Or we need a group FaceTime call. Um, so, you know, I think that for me, taking care of my own self through the challenges is essential. I know that when I'm depleted, you know, stress for me, stress affects me in terms of sleep, for example, in particular. So I'm running through lots of thoughts through the night and thinking about, um, what I'm going to do that next day and how I'm going to tackle this next challenge. So my self-care declines and, and that's where my focus has to be during challenges. I, it's kind of my, my foundation has to be pulled together in order for me to, to meet the challenge ahead of me. So figuring out that balance, I've, uh, like I said, I rely on my support system, folks that will say, are you okay? You know, yeah, I've been, you have been a little happy than usual, or you sent an email out at 2 a.m. What is going on, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or did you realize you were texting me at 6.30 in the morning? Um, so those folks that keep me in check, I'm super grateful for them. Um, and, you know, they just kind of help me press the reset button so that I can have the energy I need to to take it on, whatever it may be. That's, yeah, I, I could not agree more. I think finding the people who keep you grounded and oh. and uh, tap you on the shoulder when you might be doing too much or feeling a little overwhelmed can be really, really valuable. Yes, so grateful for those folks. And then, you know, I have my kids who say things to me like, what is wrong with you, mom? <laughs> you know, like or roll their eyes at me or they're like, you're so irritable. What's going on? Um, they, keep, they keep me very grounded. They keep me very grounded, right? <laughs> Kids so, have a way of saying those things. <laughs> yeah, they just are truth tellers. When your 12-year-old tells you that you have been grumpy for a whole week, then that means it's time to reset and you're probably not functioning at your best at whatever that goal is that you are also trying to achieve. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so so now I'd like to move into more leadership-focused questions. Um, So how are you thinking about leadership as COVID-19 continues to change our landscape daily? I think COVID-19, racial injustice, I mean, for me, they are both just right top of mind, very present for me right now. So I, I think about both of them at the same time, which can also be really overwhelming, to be honest with you. I think that for me, leadership has changed in that it has to be more broad-based. Um, I have to think outside of my typical routine um, or the typical ways that I impact my work, right? So um, I am trying to figure out and, and trying to figure out new ways of um, helping, new ways of acting. So certainly with COVID-19, thinking about access to care and making sure that um, I am doing my part for the field to try to, you know, allow that, to try to ensure that people have that access. When I think about racial injustice and thinking about the specific skill set that I possess and how that can be helpful communities or groups or settings, right? So I've been more active with my church in a professional way. So I don't typically interface with my church as a professional, but, you know, maybe more of that happening. 
thinking about committees that I sit on or boards that I sit on and making sure that conversations about race and diversity and equity and inclusion are a part of the conversations. And this has been something that's been important to me for years, but now we have ears. Now we have people that are thinking about it as well. And we have people that are ready to act and, um, folks that I think are more sensitive to the, the troubles that are, that are facing us. So it's, it's the time, it's the time to act and to make some, some changes in how we, um, in the decisions that we make and the operations of, of, you know, organizations and agencies. So I am using my voice in new ways. I'm making sure that, um, creating opportunities for other voices to be heard as well. Um, conversations that may not ordinarily happen, I think now's the time for them to happen. And I'm being sure that I'm creating an environment that is open to those conversations. Um, you know, there, it's, uh, the focus of my work has shifted, honestly, in, in recent weeks. Um, I'm, I'm, thinking more broadly than I might have been um, five months ago. Five months ago, I, I probably was more focused on uh, my practice and making sure that my patients were taken care of and that I was doing the best I could by them. And now I'm thinking about my community um, in a more intense way than before. And, and to be honest with you, in many ways, it's been, it's been exhausting. Certainly, because there's you know the sheer number of hours has increased, but also because um, as an African American woman who's also a mother of an African American teenager and African American preteen, I'm having some really difficult conversations at my house around race and around injustice and around discrimination and racism, and so figuring out how to balance my personal life and my professional life has been really hard. Being a helper around this extremely difficult area, difficult in that it, it affects people in such powerful ways when it's also affecting me personally in those same powerful ways, those same ways, you know? So I've been doing this for years, this like trauma work and learning how to compartmentalize and, and keep my own personal feelings at bay so that I could be a helper. It's hard. It's been hard. It's been hard to do that right now to compartmentalize um, because this, this has hit home in ways that I was not prepared for, honestly. Yeah. My role has, has changed. And I think that I come to the work differently because of my personal experience and, you know, uh, I would say that there's more of my emotional self in the room, in the room, whatever that may mean. It's harder to keep that out than it used to be, but I think that it is also bringing a new and really helpful quality to the work that I'm doing. I've been struck by, so continuing to practice through all of this, I've been struck by the ways in which the racial unrest is affecting many people, right? And in a variety of ways. So I'm checking in with everyone that I meet now around these issues of race and the protests and the rioting and how this is all impacting them and the, the violent murders 
and the stories and the experiences that people are share are people are sharing are vast. It's affecting people in in unique ways, and I have been just really touched in in, in terms of what I've learned about the people that I'm working with, in terms of the struggles that they have, in terms of their ability to say things to me that that they may think are hard for me to hear, right? But they're willing to to talk about it. Um, so it has been just a lot of uh, emotional work. It's, it's been very emotional. I think the amount of dialogue I've seen recently has been one of the few uplifting things um, about this time, just the amount of uncomfortable conversations people are willing to engage in and, and willing to be honest and confront things they don't like about themselves and things that they otherwise might not discuss. Mm. I hope that people are having those conversations. I hope that they are. Yeah. I've been struck. I was at a friend's house, went to another family, um, their home recently. And this is a white family that we've been close with for many years and have had many great conversations about issues of race and culture and, and diversity. It just is a part of our relationship. So we talk a lot. And in this recent time that we had together, we interestingly hadn't talked about race in the context of everything that's going on around us. And, and so I raised it um, and it kind of as a, a check-in with them to see how they were doing and how their kids were doing. And, and my girlfriend, the wife um, said, you know, it's been so hard for me to figure out how to talk about all of this right now. She said, it just has felt like they're, everything is so raw that I'm, and I'm so worried about saying the wrong thing unintentionally, you know, and, and I've known her for years and I know where her spirit is and her heart. Um, and so for her to say, I'm avoiding difficult conversations right now um, because I don't want to hurt anyone and I don't want to offend anyone was hard. It was painful for me because I, I know that she could be a really powerful ally and support person for many, many people. Um, but I also appreciate that she is feeling cautious and, and maybe um, self-protective um, and, and also wants to be sensitive and, and, and not cause further harm to people. But, so I think that these conversations are hard in many ways, many ways. Thank you for, for sharing that story. I think it's a good reminder that not everyone is ready or comfortable to have those conversations right now. Yeah, I think I heard recently, it, it was either a podcast with Layla Saad or Code mm -hmm. Switch, it was something, but they had a statement around um, in these dialogues, we should, be, we should be thoughtful, not careful. And I thought that mm -hmm. was a really beautiful way to put it because I think when people are hesitant, there's a fear of not being careful enough. When, it, like you said, if you know someone, you know their heart's in the right place, it's so much better to have a real conversation and really engage in, in what's uncomfortable and be open and honest about it so you can, mm -hmm. can make progress. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, so we have to get through this barrier, this barrier of... Um, you know, worrying about offending people and, and, um, and worrying, worrying so much or 
situations being so like hostile, uncomfortable, um, difficult that it is causing people to turn inward, right? Um, so I think the ground rules, you know, we have to, and, and people that are more comfortable are have more responsibility to, to create the space and to, you know, allow to make it so that other people feel free and able to share. Um, and sometimes folks will say things that are hard to hear that may feel offensive. Um, and so we talked about that too. You know, again, what's the end goal? Keeping the end goal in mind. It's a really valuable insight to remember. Yeah. Yeah. So thinking about your experience as a leader, could you describe an example of a great leadership experience that you've had either through your training or your career more generally? So I will tell you about a great leadership experience that I had that I actually wasn't thinking about until we start talking about all this race stuff. So when I was training um, on my postdoc internship um, in Boston, uh, so I was at Harvard Medical School at the Children's Hospital, Children's Hospital Boston. Um, and one of the rotations that we had was in the emergency department. So as people came in, we would, um, they would be seen by the resident um, on call or on duty. And then if there was a mental health component, they would call us in to do an evaluation and to make a determination about next steps. Um, and so we had shifts and I think it's about a six month rotation. And I went, so resident came to me on one family and said, we have a teenager who's expressing suicidal ideation and need you to see the family and, and circle back to me. Let me know what we need to do. So I went in to see the family and it's a mother and a father and a teenage girl. And I, you know, just had, just had started the conversation of, hi, my name is, you know, how are you? Um, I, I understand that, you know, the past couple of days have been really rough. And, and the mom said to me, no, hold on. We can't, I can't do this. We can't, I can't do this. I need you to go and get that other resident and, and bring him back in here. I, I just sent him in please don't, don't come back. I can't do this. And so I thought, huh, a couple things could be happening. Um, maybe she's had a flood of emotion. You know, her daughter is expressing suicidal ideation, a mental health provider comes in, maybe it's kind of um, uh, triggering some emotion, some difficult emotion for mom. That's possible. Um, was there something about me? Was there something about my approach, my entree into the situation? Did she not know I was coming? You know, maybe that was it. Or, you know, was there, was she reacting to me in some way? So the resident goes in, I, I, I say, sure, I can do that for you. And um, resident goes in, he talks to the family, he comes back out and he says, I'm unwilling to receive services from you because you are black. And she doesn't think that you are competent enough to take care of her daughter. He said, can you call someone else in? And I said, I'm going to call my attending and find out the best course of action. My attending um, was a, a white woman. She was a, actually a social worker by training, um, doctorate level social worker and director of the mental health services for the emergency room. 
um, she happened to be on call. So that was my attending at that time. And, um, and she said, she, I explained to her what had happened. And, and at this point was humiliated, right? Because this woman has made this judgment about me based on my physical appearance. She didn't even give me a chance to demonstrate my knowledge, you know, my ability to help. Um, she had made a, a quick judgment simply based on my outward appearance and my identity. Um, so it was also kind of, um, you know, penetrated and hurt me, right? Um, so my attending says, absolutely not. We will not be sending anyone else in there. It is not, if she wants to receive services here, she will, be, she will receive services from you. If she is unwilling to do that, then she needs to go to another, another emergency room. But we will not tolerate, we will not tolerate racism and discrimination here. This was 15 years ago. Um, and she said, please bring the resident to the phone so that I can communicate that to him. And so she gave him the same message and she said, um, you need to go back in there and tell them that this is their only option here, that, you, that Felicia Smith is training here because we are confident in her expertise and there's no reason for us to provide them another provider. She's perfectly capable of making the assessment and doing what, needs to do, what, the, what, they, what she needs to do for that family. So the resident did that, the family left. They chose to find another wow. emergency room. In this situation of crisis for their teenage daughter, they left to find another, to go to another emergency room. And the attending came down and um, she came down to the emergency room and she talked with me, kind of processed it with me and processed it with that, uh, the resident and explained you know the hospital stance uh that we that we are not an we would not tolerate that that sort of behavior from patients patients in need uh they, they come here because of the reputation of this hospital and they can have confidence that everyone working here is capable of providing services for them so then so i felt so supported by her and so validated by her i mean it was it was really powerful to me and then um she, so not only did she respond in that situation with me, but she then developed a whole curriculum that every trainee in the hospital had to go through around cultural competence and cultural humility and, you know, how the stance, it would, I think right now would be an anti-racism stance, um, but we didn't call it that then, so that she was sure that all of the providers that trained through that facility would be approaching the work in a consistent way. That was incredible leadership. It was incredible. Touched me on a personal level, but then she also made a broader impact on all of these people that would be moving through that institution and, and training and then, and then kind of populating other institutions, right? So her, her willingness to stand up for me in that moment was, I mean, it, it's one of those professional experiences that I, that has been the most meaningful in my, in my history. I felt she was just, she was an incredible ally and made me, helped me to appreciate the impact that, that I can have 
on other on other people, right? So yeah, that was an incredible example of leadership in my in my opinion. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I could feel my my own chest getting tight as you told that story because that's I can't imagine how painful that would be, but also to have such a good leader in the moment to to help navigate that would be very very meaningful. Absolutely. Absolutely. I am I continue to feel really grateful for her. She used that as an opportunity to really act and affect the whole system. She she's a, a model of of leadership for me. So thinking about that, what lessons would you give to other psychologists about being an effective leader? Hmm. Um, I would encourage others to find their passion that, um, leadership is about kind of bringing your own self into that experience. So, you know, and, and, and trust that the things that are important to you and that you value are part of the reason that you've been put into that position. So I think finding your voice around those matters that are important to you and making sure that you are creating space for, for others. So being an effective leader means, means listening and means allowing and making sure that that you are encouraging and promoting the ideas and the the initiatives that others would like to pursue as well. So, you know, it's it's this interesting give and take of promoting your own ideas and passions, but also supporting and promoting those of others. I would say that an effective leader is always thinking about who's going to fill their spot. <laughs> You know, when and, and, and making sure that they understand when it's time to make space for that next person to fill their spot. So um, leadership development is really important. You, Hannah, doing this, um, being a part of the Leadership Academy and creating these podcasts to hear from folks in the field. Fantastic. I mean, people sharing their experiences is educational. It also, I think, um, helps people to see themselves. Uh, you know, you got to talk about yourself, then you start to see yourself in a different way and kind of assess yourself in a new way, which is important for leaders. So, you know, you are helping to cultivate new leaders, but also helping to kind of refine existing leaders, which is just amazing. So I think that, you know, sort of leadership is a unique role and, 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 and it requires training in leadership, right? It, you don't just kind of step into it and figure out how to do it or already know how to do it, but you become better at it with more opportunities and you have to be a student of, of that process, right? So making sure you're talking to other leaders and learning from them and, and doing the, the self-reflection. So it, it is a big responsibility you know, to have decision-making power. And my hope is that psychologists will find their way into more opportunities to have decision-making power. But it's also a big responsibility, so you have to be prepared for that too. I really love your emphasis on, I I think sustainability would be a way to describe it, kind of Mm -hmm. both in taking care of yourself over time, evaluating yourself, and also knowing when it's time to step back or step into something Mm -hmm. further. I think that's Mm -hmm. often a message that's lost. Right. I think that's right. Absolutely. 
yeah, you know, we have, you know, so much talent. There's so much talent out there and, and the diversity of people and ideas and skills have to be mobilized. Like we need to bring that to bear and make good use of it. So sometimes you're the right person, sometimes you're not the right person. You got no one to step aside. Those are such wise words. Well, I think that's all the time we have left today, but thank you so much for, for making the time to, to join us and sharing your wisdom and personal stories. It's been such a pleasure. Oh, it's been great for me too. I really appreciate the opportunity. I love what you're doing. I hope that um, folks will tune into your podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership Narratives with the Kentucky Psychological Association. Our sound engineer is Julian Mackerel. A big thank you to the KPA Leadership Academy and Dr. Eric Ress for making this podcast possible.